Welcome to Keep Them Coming with Open the Doors Coaching. I'm your host, Kristen Thomas. I'm a relationship, dating, and sex coach based in Kansas City, and I just love to talk to people about what goes on in their sex lives and relationships. I also enjoy a good conversation about love, activism, or making change in the world. Be warned, you should probably be 18 and over, and probably also listening on your headphones. Thanks for tuning in. Sierra Simone is a USA Today best-selling former librarian. She spent way too much time reading romance novels at the information desk. She lives in Kansas City with her husband and her family, and I think it makes absolute sense to round out self-care month with a romance writer. Did you know that one of every three fiction books sold is a romance novel? It is the single largest genre of books out there. And I really think that reading a romance novel can help you fulfill fantasy. It can help you expand your horizons in the bedroom with your partner. It can help normalize what you like. It can provide so much to people. Pick up a romance novel if you never have before. And I'd highly recommend starting off with one from Sierra Simone. Enjoy the show. Today, I have a really fun guest. I am so excited to have Sierra Simone. She's a romance writer. Hello. Thanks for having me. Oh my gosh. So we met when I went to the Romance Writers Conference here, the Romance Genre Con. Yes. Romance Genre Con, which is a yearly con hosted by the Mid-Continent Library. Um, It is a free conference for readers um, to interact with romance writers, Um, and it's also a conference for aspiring romance writers to learn more about the craft and business Mm -hmm. um, of writing romance. And there's a wonderful mix of um, contemporary romance authors, historical romance authors, paranormal authors. They bring in New York Times bestselling authors from all over the place, but they also showcase local authors, um, local to Kansas City as well. Mm -hmm. So it's a great opportunity to meet people um, from kind of every area of romance publishing. And then some of those people live, could be your neighbor. So, you know, you have the chance to be like, let's go out for coffee afterwards or something like that. So it's a great con. And if you're interested at all in romance or like if you're just dipping a toe in or you're interested in getting started, I highly recommend looking out for 2020's romance genre con, which will be in early August. It was such a fun weekend. It really was just, I mean, Okay, so I am a romance newbie. All right. So my exposure to romance was through my mom's Harlequin novels. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, the Fabio <laughs> on the cover, yes. all that. The paperbacks, yes. yes. <laughs> I mean, every night she would be curled up on her bed under the lamp with her Diet Coke by her bed, <laughs> reading her novels. And she'd read them over and over again. Oh, yeah. She had her favorites. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, I think that that's actually how most people come to romance is through um, their mother's reading. And what's interesting is that I do have a lot of mother-daughter readers that Mm -hmm. I meet um, that come to me and they read together. But I think that that's kind of a new thing. I think that for a lot of people, there was a little bit of a divide between what mom read and what I was 
allowed to read you know oh, yeah. so like it wasn't like mom was handing yeah, you the she didn't hand me those books for sure not even like when I was 16 17 not even when I was an adult has she ever been like you need to read this exactly exactly so it is interesting there is um sort of this legacy um the even romance fans like people who mm-hmm. gobble up romance um were um less than open about it I guess or felt that there was something um, sort of deeply adult about it that couldn't be translated to their adolescent daughters, yeah. which is really interesting. Well, even though I'm a certified sex coach, it's not like my mom and I have really sat down and had good in-depth talks about <laughs> anything super sexual. There's been some light chatter, yes. some things here and there, but yet there's never been, I don't know, that deep in-depth talk about stuff. Yes. So, well, I wonder if it's been... Like, would it feel shameful for her to hand me a book and be like, this is my favorite book. And then, like, I'm reading it. And then it's like, I'm in my mom's, like, mind. Like, yes, maybe that's just a right. space she's so afraid to let me into. Yeah. You know, I think it's deeply, um, it can be deeply vulnerable to talk about the things that arouse us, to talk about the things mm-hmm. that stimulate us. Um, and even aside from sex, like, maybe to admit that we still pine for romantic moments, um, mm-hmm. even even if we're in an established relationship or if we're in a place in our lives where we're sort of like, I don't need an established relationship to feel fulfilled, which a lot of people genuinely feel. But it can still be vulnerable to say, this is something that I miss or this is something that, you know, scratches an itch. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I, what I think is interesting is that I think both simultaneously that exists in romance culture, even if it's eroding now, this sort of... Um, each of us are sort of like candles in the dark reading our own romance. You know, we're sort of in the uh, in the romance closet, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, romance uh, fulfills the lack of sexual dialogue that a lot of women didn't get to have with their mothers or grandmothers or aunts or sisters. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because romance, for a long time, and really romance is broadening now, I want to say. So when I say women... Um, historically that's been mostly true but there have always been queer authors using romance Mm -hmm. to talk to each other Mm -hmm. and even more so now um queer romance is exploding it's growing i love yeah that's that's amazing. amazing um so romance has been a vector for women and queer people to talk to each other mm-hmm. about sex and desire. Um, and so I think that romance has really, um, for a lot of for a lot of women and queer people, it was the first chance they got to, they had of seeing sort of an open, uh, naked, sometimes literally naked, dialogue about sex and desire mm-hmm. um, for them. Um, because a lot of sexual messages in our overculture have been calibrated for white straight men Mm -hmm. and the white straight male gaze has been sort of the default gaze yes for so long yes um but here in the background these fabio paperbacks Mm -hmm. (laughs) were uh eroding that you know eroding the strength of that narrative because for the first time women were writing and talking to each other about what they found desirable about what they should be able to demand in bed Mm -hmm. um Damon Swade, who was at the Romance Yeah, Genre-Con. I really liked He's amazing. Him. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. And he is uh, a romance author, and he is also kind of a romance expert. He's like a writing expert. Um, and so mm-hmm. he teaches a lot about writing and about what romance is as a genre, as well as being an amazing author. Um, but one of the things he I've seen him talk about is how um, things like birth control mm-hmm. – 
things like um, the right of female pleasure. These were things that actually were present in romance novels before they became super present in popular culture. Mm, And so it was this idea that like, you know, if we have these women's novels in the 70s really, really talking about birth control in in a casual way, not in a preachy way, not in sort of a, this is my essay on medium.com way, (laughs) but in, you know, a really sort of approachable and relatable way. And then within five to 10 years, you have the majority of American women saying that they approve of birth control, that they want access to birth control, you know, that they don't mind if other people take it. Like, those kind of things aren't a coincidence. Mm-hmm. Um, Literature is a gateway to change, it right? It really is. And I think what's powerful about romance is that um, the premise of a romance novel is that it has a happily ever after, right? Yes. Which sounds cheesy. But what is great about that is that it means in embedded in the structure of a romance novel is the idea that everyone deserves hope and justice. Mm-hmm. Um, every single person. As my friend Sarah McLean says, it's not happily ever after, it's happily everyone after. So that means that everyone, regardless of your background or your body, deserves um, respect and dignity and joy. Um, and so the great thing about romance is that we can put things that would ordinarily or that still are political in the narrative Mm -hmm. with the guarantee that everything is going to be great by the end yeah which is really nice like that that gives readers yeah it gives readers a sense of safety absolutely and I think it also builds a world for us to um create in the real you know like out in reality like this idea that um the optimism and human dignity should be everywhere. Absolutely. Not just I feel that a hundred percent. So I don't know if you've noticed on my business card, my logo, the three little birds, uh-huh. it's a reference to Bob Marley. Cause I wanted people to kind of just their mind to go down that road and then eventually have that sense by looking at my card of like, everything's going to be all right. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And I think that when you have that kind of outlook, um, that a happily ever after what it really means is sort of like a, justice and joy ever after you know it really it really changes your perspective in the real world and I think that that is really powerful right now because I think um it's not that there's ever been a golden age to be a woman or to be queer (laughs) or to be a person with a disability or to be a person of color that's not true but since 2016 we've entered into sort of a new sphere of existing and I think um it's really easy to get weary or cynical because it feels like sort of this onslaught, you know, Um, and, and, and this onslaught on things you can't always control, like what my body is or um, what is the color of my skin. Those are Mm -hmm. things that are outside of our control. Um, And so like having the, having the perspective of no, like we are not only are things going to be okay, but I have the agency to make them okay. Yes. That is really reframing because it kind of keeps the worst of cynicism from sort of washing over me, which often. <laughs> it's hard because yeah. when, you know, when we um, had someone else in office who was a little bit more uh, adept at governing <laughs> and our lives were pretty much just okay. Yeah. You know, like it's, it's fine when the person in office is on your side. But the fact that the person in power has so much control and there's been so much change since they've been in office, yeah. I, first off, they shouldn't have that much power where it has that much sway on our lives, but that means that we've got to take our power back and right. our control, like you say, our agency back. I think it's it's a really um, 
crystallizing moment, mm-hmm. um, especially in romance. And romance as a genre has really undergone a lot of growing growing pains in the mm-hmm. last, I mean, in the last 10 years, but especially in the last few years. Few. Yeah. yeah. So that's one thing I want to ask you about. So having been to the, the romance genre con, that was yes. something that got brought up is yeah. about diversity mm-hmm. in the um, in the genre. First off, I do want to like, let's talk some numbers here. Yeah. Like sure. how many people read romance right now? So, um, what I can tell you is that, um, one out of every three fiction books sold is a romance mm-hmm. book. Um, it's an industry that earns over a billion dollars yeah. a year. Yeah, um, it's huge, it's huge, it's huge. So it's the biggest, uh, single genre mm-hmm. in in uh, fiction. So it's bigger than mystery. It's bigger than uh, commercial fiction, which is sort of the like uh, Reese's uh, book club. You know those kind mm-hmm. of books that are not a, not they're mainstream fiction, um, and sometimes they're women's fiction, but they they don't necessarily fit into a genre like mystery or fantasy or romance. Okay. Um, romance is bigger than all of those. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a big genre. And what's interesting is that um, you would assume that most people who buy romance are women. Um, and the majority are, but 15% of romance readers are men. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are a lot of men um, and uh, pe- people aside from women are finding power in these narratives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the things I got addressed that I you know, kind of regressed from in this line of questioning was that there is a lack of diversity, mm-hmm. not just amongst the, the writers, but the stories that are being told. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, I get that part of that is, it's not that you can't tell stories if you're not in a certain group, but you better darn well tell that story, right? Absolutely. And you better give it power, like in a way that's respectful, all the things. But there is overall lack of diversity amongst mm-hmm. the writers. Absolutely. Um, and so in the way that the overculture has privileged the white, straight, male gaze. Mm-hmm. Um, romance writing for a long time, uh, and still to this day, privileges the straight, white, female gaze. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you're not in that box, um, if you are a person of color, if you're a person with disabilities, if you're a queer person, if you're non-binary, um, it's been really difficult to get your stories published. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, the other half of it is uh, to get readers to open up to your stories. Mm-hmm. Um, because there is, unfortunately, there is kind of a culture um, in romance of, well, this story must not be for me mm-hmm. if there is a person who looks different than me on the cover. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, romance in the last three years has really had to confront its legacy of racism. And mm-hmm. in particular, anti-blackness has yeah. been the biggest legacy. Um, and this year at RWA, so every year, uh, RWA is the Romance Writers of America. Mm-hmm. And every year they host a national convention, and at this national convention, they have a big award ceremony um, called the Ritas. And the Ritas, we like to say, are kind of the Oscars of romance. I mean, Damon would take <laughs> objection to that because Damon actually knows how award show works, and he's like, they don't work anything like the Oscars. The o- Oscars are this kind of voting, and the Ritas are this kind of voting. Um, whatever. We all dress up in pretty dresses, <laughs> and our friends and get statues. Down, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> um, so. Uh, RWA, which was founded by a black woman, Vivian Stevens, um, for for 40 years did not see 
uh, fit to give a single black author a Rita. Mm. I mean, when you do the math, it's like actually astonishing as to how many winners there are. Um, and there's just no way that's by chance, right? Like right. that's structural anti-blackness. Yeah. So this year at the Rita's, um, we had our first two black winners and our first um, South Asian winner, um, which was amazing. So Kennedy Ryan, uh, Minx Malone, and Nisha Sharma mm-hmm. won awards and made history this summer. That and just it was, gave me chills. I know. It was beautiful. And I was lucky enough to be there. And it was just, it was truly like, um, like just one of those experiences that's almost like you feel closer to God, you know, because it was just so powerful and the entire room felt the power of it. Um, but the fact that it's 2019 and we're having our first um, black uh, and Indian winners is nuts. I mean, yeah. that's just, it's just, it's bananas. And so um, I, it's something that really is still unfolding. So when I say we've like we've had growing pains, I don't want to make it sound like we've achieved right. growth. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. um, it's still there's a, no end to it. There's no end. It's still really um, a painful dialogue and a reckoning that mm-hmm. um, romance as a genre is, has to have. Um, the like I said, I think the beautiful thing about romance is that it's a genre of hope. And so it gives me the hope that uh, change is possible. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think how readers can um, uh, help help contribute to this hope is they can buy books from authors they don't know. They can take a chance on authors they haven't read before uh-huh. that are from different backgrounds and, um, you know, really be brave with their, with their reading. Because I think what they'll find is that all stories are human mm-hmm. stories. Um, and there's really no such thing as this story is for this people and the story is for this people. Yeah. yeah. When people are willing to give movies a chance when it's about a hero or a main character that doesn't look like them or isn't yes. about them. Yes. Plenty of straight women saw Carol. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and um, we all saw Black Panther and right? loved it. Yeah. 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 Oh, God. I did love it. I still listen to that soundtrack all the time. Yes. My it's so routine. good. So I think that there's, you know, there is readers are actually more willing to bend um, or not bend, but to, to take a chance on mm-hmm. something they haven't read before than publishers think they are. So mm-hmm. a lot of this kind of goes into sort of the gritty backwaters of publishing where, um, you know, decisions are made by people with spreadsheets. Yeah. And so they say, well, you know, people don't buy gay romance, so we can't publish gay romance. And, well, it's sort of a chicken and egg argument. Right. If you don't publish it, then, then people, people don't can't have a chance it. to read it. Yeah, exactly. they can't <laughs> physically buy it. So, like, if you're, yeah, that's if you're only producing so much, then yeah, there's exactly. only so much to consume. Right. And so we, as readers, we speak with our wallets. Yes. Um, but also as writers, you know, so I am a white woman, and so I feel my job is to... Um, use whatever platform I have to promote authors of marginalized backgrounds as Mm -hmm. much as possible. So uh, as authors, we can use our voices to, you know, amplify the voices of the people who need to be heard. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's something that I have talked about on my podcast before, that as a cisgendered white woman, I'm bisexual, queer, uh, there's a lot of people out there who don't look like me. But they can't be the only ones speaking up for themselves. Exactly. It's up to people like ourselves who have the platform and have the voice and have the ears and the eyes. Yeah, absolutely. To be able to say, like, you shouldn't just be paying attention to me. You need to be paying attention to these other people, too. Absolutely. And within our own work, um, you know, as much as we can erase 
white straight and cis is the default mm-hmm. um i think is really is really powerful so yep. the process for that um would usually look like you know inviting hopefully you have people in your life um that you can dialogue with mm-hmm. as you're constructing a story but certainly after you finished a story you want to um seek out uh feedback yeah and informed feedback um so they're in writing um if you're an aspiring writer <laughs> if you just google sensitivity readers mm-hmm. um oh, okay. we call them either sensitivity readers or um sometimes i think it's accuracy readers uh, mm-hmm. um so those are people from the backgrounds that you're writing in mm-hmm. who can give you feedback and insight yeah um on on your book so that you can make changes and above you know it's sort of like the old physician saying like above all do no harm yeah. right so yeah. we don't want to do harm with our books and so utilizing um, that kind of feedback is a way that privileged authors can you know work to erase white and straight and cis as the default within within their texts but Mm -hmm. also do it thoughtfully and responsibly well the thing that we have to keep in mind is that it's not our jobs to tell people what their experience is like it's simply our jobs to listen Mm -hmm. to them and hear what they have to say so yeah as an author that's great that you've got people that you can turn to so you can write about experiences that aren't exactly like your own yeah because maybe maybe you've got a character that's very much like you but then they're having an interaction with a character that they're trying to learn something from or and you've still got to tell that person's story to get people to identify with it absolutely you did say something that really really struck a chord with me at the writers conference which is especially talking about bisexuals Mm -hmm. how so many times bisexual women especially Mm -hmm. are portrayed as they're just doing it for the male gaze they're just doing it to be fun you know it's just like what white girls do to have a good time sometimes and I was like damn (laughs) you're right like and, and even in the conversations that I have sometimes with people about my bisexuality or other people's bisexuality it's always about the like cool cool so you're down for a threesome like perhaps but sometimes you're not going to be involved (laughs) right you know so I love that you said that there has got to be more representation in literature from again a different perspective that's not about uh the male consumption yes um and I think I think that the conversation about bisexuality and pansexuality has really evolved in the last 10 years, you know, thanks to places like Tumblr and Twitter where people, um, uh, you know, these sort of lowercase d democratic platforms where people can share their experiences. Um, But really there, I was sort of the victim, not the victim, that's a bad word, but you know, I I, um, came to be myself in a very weird space in the 90s where bisexuality was really breaking into the fore of like cultural consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was definitely the sort of insidious narratives that um, bisexual women are either performative, so mm-hmm. it's, you know, it is performing for the male gaze, or that it comes from a place of sort of indecision. Right. Or like, it's like, it's just on your way to being gay. It's on your, yes, on a, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think Damon said, uh, the old phrase is like, by now, gay later. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so that it was sort of this waiting place, you know, like in the Dr. Seuss book, like it's the waiting place between being gay or being straight and that it's not really like a place you can stay and exist in permanently. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so I like that was always sort of like a background program, you know, sort of like background software um, as a lot of cultural messages are. And I'm married to a man and who I deeply love, but I also don't know 
that if I came of age at a different time that I would be married to a man then you know like if mm-hmm. I had graduated in 2015 instead of you know 2005 like I might have a very different story I might have a very different um relationship pattern or marriage right um right. because I think that that message was always sort of in the back of my head that you know bisexuality was sort of this thing that you could be but it wasn't like something you could act out right like it's yeah. like this identity that could exist inside your brain but it wasn't something that actually manifested externally um and so it wasn't I feel that (laughs) yeah it wasn't until I was in college that I was like oh no like no I I like it when it manifests externally (laughs) (laughs) um but yes it is it is this really interesting message so in a lot of my books um especially in my last series I uh try to unpack bisexuality and sort of normalize it um, both with women and with men. Mm-hmm. I think that... Yes, we, thank yes, you. Because there's a lot... It's hard enough as a woman to be bisexual, but there's... Bisexual men are the least visible so, category right now amongst the LGBT community. I believe it. It's such an invisible category. And um, I think that... I think that that is one place that, you know, we've really uh, let let our let our friends down, our bisexual male friends down, mm-hmm. um, man friends down, is that we haven't, you know, we haven't really given them the credit they deserve because it's hard enough to be a queer man. But to be a queer man who's already straddling a space that's not well understood mm-hmm. is really difficult. Um, and so I try to have as many characters be casually bisexual as possible, um, leading characters. Mm-hmm. Um, so even in books where the romance is what we call MF, like male-female or mm-hmm. man-woman, um, I like to have characters still be bisexual um, because I think it's important to queer straight space. So this idea that some places are just these like monoliths of straightness like a marriage between a man and a woman, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think is important to disrupt that narrative that, you know, like that actually, no, these spaces are not the monoliths of straightness, you think, because I'm queer. I'm like the queer cuckoo in the nest, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so if you're a bisexual woman, I think it's important not to take a platform away from the people who really need visibility right now. And like in particular, I think our transgender friends and transgender Mm -hmm. friends of color, like they need so much of our love and support. Yes. So they don't need me on Twitter being like, but it's so hard being by. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. Um, but I do think that like our work is within making, you know, erasing the straight default narrative, yeah. right? Um, and so that's what I try to do in my books. And so my latest series, the Thorn Chapel series, I made every character by. Just as like the default. Mm, so like mm-hmm. that there was, you know, we read so many books where everyone is straight as the default. Yeah. And so I thought, no, you know, this time like just everyone's bi, everyone's queer. And that's the default that we're going to operate from. Like there's not a single straight person I like in that. this story. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> I do try to operate from a place that's like, I don't know what your orientation is and I want to respect whatever you are. And I had a time a couple years ago where someone was saying, you know, like, well, there's somebody else in our department that's gay. And I was like, well, who? And they're like, well, that's not my story to tell. I'm like, well, but they're out. Like, why do they have to be the one to tell me to their face? Like, I want right. to be respectful and not use, like, a gender normative, like, she to him if he has a male partner at home. Right. Like, it, to me, it's just more of a respect thing. It's not about me being intrusive. Right. I'm just trying not to operate from a place of assuming that everyone is straight by default. Yeah, absolutely. And just be more of like, I don't know you are please let me know so I can yeah be cool and respectful absolutely absolutely I'm hoping that times are starting to to change for more people like that like 
I try to say partner a lot. Yeah. I had someone the other day go like, well, you're, you're constantly saying partner. I'm like, well, yes, because it's just not, it's not placing any judgment or gender upon anything. It leaves the door open for anyone to feel comfortable enough to then say, yeah, my boyfriend or my girlfriend or my fam, because maybe they're non-binary. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. just, I'm just trying to leave that door open. They're like, oh, okay. Well, I thought you were just trying to be like super PC. I'm like, well, I mean, I guess it is a PC thing, yeah. but it's more about a respect thing. Yeah. I don't know what your story is. Yeah. So I'm leaving it open for you to be able to fill in whatever blank or just leave it as how I said it. Absolutely. And you know, I think that that's one of the, one of the dynamics in writing romance, especially erotic romance mm-hmm. is... Um, to some extent we are sexualizing everything, you know, like to some extent, like things are just, um, going to be sexualized in erotic romance. And so choosing what to sexualize and choosing what language to use can be really, um, difficult and interesting. Um, and it's a challenge that I'm always navigating, right? Mm-hmm. Cause I'm always mm-hmm. like sort of aware of like, okay, so like I am really sexualizing this masculinity. Like, is it to the point where, a reader feels like, okay, this is sexualized masculinity um, specific to the story, you know, specific to this, to these characters and what they want. Mm-hmm. Or am I doing it in a way that makes it sound that like, you know, everyone should find this sexy or gotcha. everyone mm-hmm. should sexualize this. Mm-hmm. And so it's a really interesting balance. Um, and I think romance on the whole is navigating it very well. Um I think one of the biggest uh, gross has been about consent, which we talked mm, a little bit yes. about um, at Romance GenreCon. This idea that um, romance should have consent on the page, mm-hmm. um, which mm-hmm. sounds like it shouldn't be like a revolutionary idea. But, but there's <laughs> a lot of books out there, I'm sure, yeah. that are just very much the like, he ravished her, he took her. Sure. Like it's kind of that. Especially mm-hmm. in the early days. Mm-hmm. Um but what's interesting about romance is so romance romances are written very fast. So most romance authors I know write two books a year, mm-hmm. if not more. I know romance authors who write like seven books a year. Oh, yeah. I do not. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, we're writing very fast. We're writing a lot faster than sort of the Reese's book club picks are writing. How many writing. words a day do you try I to write? I generally try to write about 2,000 words a day. Sometimes yeah. it's more, sometimes it's less. Mm-hmm. But um, in general, I write enough that I can put out three books a year. Sometimes it's less, sometimes it's more, depending, like this year, I will have three or four releases, and two of those were not, like, I will have four, and two of those were books I wrote last year. So Mm -hmm. sometimes it just kind of depends on how the schedule falls. So romance is iterating on society very fast. I mean, really fast. And so what's great and terrible about romance is that you're getting a snapshot of where culture is and where it's Pop going. Culture-ish. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the things I, my friend Sarah McLean, she also has a podcast called Faded Mates, um, which talks about romance as a genre. And one of the things she says is, so sort of this like ravishing trope um, that we see a lot in early romance. So um, For a lot of romance scholars, the first romance is considered to be The Flame and the Flower by Catherine Woodwife. So it was published in, I think, 1972. Um, And the main character is uh, is assaulted. She's raped by her husband several times on page. Mm. And it's really difficult for modern readers to read because it's... um, it, well, of course, it's difficult, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so what's interesting is that, you know, this novel, this sort of seminal novel gets a, a lot of flack for the for this, as it should. Like, we should, yeah. we should not condone this. But the context in which Catherine Woodweiss was writing was a context in which, in most states, marital rape 
was still allowed Mm -hmm. because it was not seen as rape. Like there was no such thing as marital rape because a husband could not rape his wife. Right. Um, And so every single time this main character is assaulted on page, she calls it rape. And she tells her husband that he's a rapist. Mm -hmm. And she does not let him get to change the words of what he did to her or the reality of what he did to her. Mm -hmm. So in 1972, that was actually a pretty powerful step. Yeah. That a woman was able to name that her husband had done this to her. Mm -hmm. And yes, it's set within a problematic framework of like they have a happily ever after at the end. But at the time, it was really powerful. So I think that romance is a genre where we can say, okay, what is the work that it's doing in the time? Um, and so in the 80s and, 90, and early 90s, when we're having a lot of these moving from actual rape to ravishing, which is sort of this like, I've put Semi-romantic, up a little, yeah, I put up a little bit yeah, of a protest. But really, I wanted it. But really, I wanted it. is um, this dialogue on how good girls don't want sex, right? Good girls are not allowed to just ask for sex Mm -hmm. um, and to... They have to resist. They have to resist. They have to put up a little fight or they're not really good girls. Right, exactly. It's sort of the baby it's cold outside Uh narrative, uh which is sort of this I have to protest. Um, And I remember this last Christmas. So every Christmas, right, um, there's something feast about baby it's cold outside. Yeah, right. Um, (laughs) And... uh, and I read this really interesting one a couple years ago that was like, okay, this song is about rape culture, but not in the way you think. Mm-hmm. So this is not a man who's actually trying to date rape a woman. This is a woman who thinks she can't stay over without protesting. Because it'll make her look like a slut. Right, exactly. She, yeah, the whole like, oh, what's in my drink was a, a turn of phrase at the time. It was a turn of phrase made, at the time. That women used to be like, oh, ha, ha, <laughs> Like, yeah, I'm acting I'm so... I'm playing coy. Yeah, I'm, yeah. So, I'm acting so flirty now. Surely this couldn't originally from inside me because I'm a good girl mm-hmm. what's in this drink I mean all this is an is a, a unconscious but learned script that that women had learned in the time and so you know what's interesting is that when you have rape culture you have a culture where no doesn't mean no mm-hmm. but it also means yes can't mean yes yes so a culture where you can't say no is a culture where you can't say yes um and so when we have these romance novels that to us from a modern perspective are really terrible about consent I think the work they were doing was allowing women to experience pleasure within the cultural framework of the time um, and so now we're in a place where we we can take the gift that that gave us and move on you know mm-hmm. and, and move on to the next thing and so the gift you know the gift of being able to enjoy sex the gift of Um, having a partner that we can demand pleasure from now we can say okay but what are what are our cultural scripts that we need now how do we say I want this how do we say I don't want this Um, because I really think that art informs life in a lot of ways so the art we consume whether we realize it or not is giving us um, these sort of uh, subroutines that we can operate within when we don't have the the time or the energy to think something all the way through so I think if you're with a new partner or um, if you're in an emotional situation with an existing partner or partners like you might not always have the bandwidth to be like oh I'm going to construct a thoughtful dialogue about consent now Um, but if you've read 80 romance novels where um, the protagonist negotiate sexual boundaries Mm -hmm. or ask for things or ask for things not to happen 
then it becomes kind of instinctive. Like yeah. it becomes learned. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think, I think the, the internal pushback from the genre has been, well, consent's not sexy. And I think that that I is... I literally just had that talk last night with somebody on the phone. Really? Yes. It's so interesting to me because, well... I that was his perception. And I, of course, pushed back that yeah. consent can absolutely be sexy. It can absolutely be sexy. And I would argue it's our job as romance writers to make it sexy. Yes. So that we erase that stigma from it. Mm-hmm. That we erase the the idea that consent has to be um, like something uh, pr- burdensome. Mm-hmm. Um, I think... Uh, or process oriented or yeah, like, you're not sitting down to write out a contract of like what you're okay no, with and what you're you not okay with. you know what's interesting is um, the Fifty Shades of Grey movie uh-huh. has a contract scene which negotiation. is mm-hmm. super fun. Like I actually think it's the best scene in the whole movie <laughs> is when they're going back and forth about this contract. Uh-huh. Um, and it is one of the reasons hard why. Hard limits. Hard and, limits. Mm-hmm. It's one of the reasons why I gravitated towards kink in my writing life but also in my personal life is because the structure of kink makes it so that consent has to be part of the foreplay i mean it's you just really everything has to be reappropriated um and rediscussed yes um and that's one of the i think the biggest gifts of um bdsm romance you know has sort of like imbued into the larger romance world is this idea that like no let's not have sex be this thing that you if you agree to have sex right if you agree to have intercourse Mm -hmm. then you're agreeing also to have oral to do like digital stimulation like that you're agreeing to this whole menu of things because you agreed to have the entree like you're saying Uh like yes I'll have an appetizer and a salad and a soup no like let's make everything a la carte so maybe I want an entree but I don't want an appetizer or maybe I want a soup and a salad but I don't want dessert you know like yeah and that is like already sort of like a weird analogy because it's making no 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 intercourse like the entree but you know what I, I mean. love like, using food analogies when it comes to sex <laughs> absolutely um, and it's so funny that you're making this analogy too because I'm doing a couple's intimacy retreat in Jamaica in May and I had a call this week with the other coach yeah and that's something we're going to talk about is the menu of options that right. you and your partner can put together yeah she's come up with like this whole little thing so yeah and it is based on you know, your appetizer, yeah. your entree, your dessert. It's a buffet. Yeah, right. yeah. And uh, and teaching people that intimacy is about more than just penetrative intercourse. Yes, absolutely. And I think that that is another thing that romance has been doing quietly mm-hmm. um, that people don't give it enough credit for is romance really can make moments of um, uh, like – manual sex or oral sex or even like a good makeout sesh yeah. <laughs> like those within the structure of a chapter creates a beat right um in writing parlance and so like having a makeout sesh you know have the same beat resonance as the penetrative intercourse towards the end of the novel is like a really powerful statement when you think about it like, like there that um a woman's orgasm could be the end so to speak of a sexual encounter where typically and the way that like a lot of visual pornography is laid out is that the the man's orgasm is the end of the encounter yep. and mm-hmm. that and that is what is like considered a completed sex act is if there is like ejaculation the cum shot <laughs> yeah right exactly <laughs> and so this idea that we're erasing that as sort of what what a sexual encounter has to look like and that a woman's pleasure, her climax, her orgasm, that can actually be uh, entirely on its own and a complete sexual encounter, not just 
foreplay. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is like, there's been such great, I mean, I remember people talking about foreplay in the 90s when I was growing up as a kid. Mm -hmm. And um, it seems like, you know, a lot of men are really aware that like foreplay is a thing that they should do, but it's really kind of stayed in this like, well, this is what you do before sex, you know, yeah. before the real sex. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the what, opening it's act. The, it's the bases. Yeah. Yeah. But, and then after it's the bases, sometimes it just becomes the like very quick precursor to like, they right. finger you for two seconds and then like maybe right. they go like, down you for box. like yeah. a minute and a half and it's like, no, no. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. For foreplay. Yes. For- <laughs> Let's talk more about. It. So that is that is one thing that I think a lot of people can learn a lot about human sexuality from romance. Yeah. I recently introduced someone to the genre. Yeah. Who had never ever read a single romance novel. And they came back to me and was asking some questions about like, is this normal? Is that normal? And I was like, oh my love. Yes. <laughs> It is, and we're going to talk more about that very, very soon. And, you know, in my mind, all I can think about is that poor her, like that she never had a partner who cared enough about her pleasure to give her all of the things. Right. You know, that it was always about her partner's pleasure. Right. Never about her own. Right. And I think by introducing her to this, I'm giving her that understanding, that knowledge that like, oh my gosh, like wanting these things is okay. Demanding these things yes. even is okay. Expecting yes. these things well, and I think, is okay. Yeah, you know, I think that um, for the most part, our part, like with some exceptions, but for the most part, I think our partners want to give us that, you know? And I think that, again, when we're in these moments of, not sexual crisis, but you know, when we're in these moments where the the temperature is high and things are getting hot and heavy, we're all defaulting to what we know, right? Mm -hmm. Because like our frontal lobes are sort of like taking a nap (laughs) while the rest of our brains Uh really get in there. And, um, and so it can be really easy for partners to default to their scripts too, which are, you know, tick the boxes Mm -hmm. and you know, this is what we do, but then to feel equally dissatisfied that by the end, because I think a good partner wants you to have as much pleasure as they have, you know, and they experience. And so what I like about romance is that it doesn't have to, it doesn't fix something that's broken, because I don't know that it's broken, but it bridges a gap of words, you know, that people um, might have had trouble with. It's so, it's so um, sad that Tumblr has taken away their porn. Yes. <laughs> um, because one of the Thank things... Thank you, Fosta Sesta, for know, fucking up the internet right? and creating censorship so, beyond um, anything that we could have imagined right? at this point. Yeah. And there's, um, I'm not sure what the alternative could be, but I had read in a romance novel, so romance novels have made my sex life infinitely better too. And I had read in a romance novel, this is probably three or four years ago, and I think it was... Um, Maybe it was three, it wasn't three simple rules, but it was in Nikki Sloan's um, three simple rules, uh, blind, blindfold club series, where um, the hero and the heroine uh, communicate their sexual fantasies via Tumblr. Mm. And so they have a shared Tumblr account and they would just, you know, repost things that they found sexy. And I went back to my husband and I was like, we got to do this. <laughs> like, I think this is a genius idea. Oh, yeah. And um, because it can be uncomfortable sometimes to talk about things that we want to try, especially if they're things that are a little bit like, you know, outside the goalposts a little bit. Like, you know, there are lots of things that we've tried because we've saw, you know, we've 
saw each other's posts on Tumblr mm-hmm. that I don't know. I that I and I write romance with like lots of things happening, like lots of banana stuff in my romances. Um, but I don't even know that I would have had the words to go to someone I love and say like, you know, I want to, I want you to stick this inside me, or I, I want to, you know. I'm trying to think of like something wacky that's not something we've actually done. I don't know. I want to hang upside down from the ceiling fan. So like, <laughs> so like you know, there's there's so many um, there's so many ways that you can communicate that are also beyond words too, um, that can really bridge that gap. Um, it, it, whether it's through visual pornography or um, through highlighting passages in books and sharing the books with each other, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. Um, and so that's one of the things that I. I like about what romance is doing and I think it can do more of is give people the the tools to talk to each other and have their best possible sex lives if that's what they want. Sometimes people don't know what they want until they read about it Absolutely. or they see it somewhere and they're like, oh, that, that got me. Absolutely. So, yeah, sometimes they, they, like you say, they need that art yes. to show them and, and get them to feel something. Yeah. Because that, that's the thing, like until you've been exposed to something and then you feel something for it you're not like whoa I just I didn't absolutely I mean I think a lot of people felt that way about anything kinky Mm -hmm. um and Fifty Shades of Grey is a really um interesting uh you know text for a lot of reasons but one of the gifts that it gave was exposing people to the fact that (laughs) that kink isn't all like leather and you know dark dungeons Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know that Mm -hmm. it's something that people do in airy penthouses and you know it's something that you can kind of again do a la carte so you can try spanking and you don't have to try any of the other like you know wacky stuff yeah um and so I think that that exposure is really important and I think what romance novels give above all other kinds of exposure um is social and emotional context and Mm -hmm. intellectual context so I people always tell me like oh you've got two kids I have a nine-year-old and 11-year-old and they say oh you must have to hide your books from them and I say no I I don't because I would rather them pick up a book uh, a romance book and learn about sex that has social and emotional context than go to internet porn yeah Yeah. which I want to be clear like I'm a big fan of porn I love porn it's great but (laughs) but it has limitations and that it's divorced of context right and as adults we can process those things yeah, underage kids can. They cannot, yeah. and so, so I would there rather there have to be healthy, spl- healthy spaces and healthy forms of art for kids to learn about sex, pleasure, consent, absolutely, all of the things from absolutely. And so it does not worry me that my kids might pick up an erotic romance novel, my own or someone else's, because I really want them to discover sex um, as it plugs into people emotionally. Yeah. My mom never hid her books. There were times I picked them up and like thumbed through them. Like, yeah. the, honestly, there were times where I was like, this is boring. Kept going, this is boring. This, oh, that's not, okay, that yeah. section's not boring. Let's <laughs> right. read that. Exactly. You know, and then I'm like all worried about getting caught. So I'd, you know, put the book down. Right. Yeah. But I never read through a whole one. But yeah, she never hid it. Yeah. And, and she never told me not to read it. Yeah. She, there was never like a no around right. it. Right. It was more just like, it's here. We don't talk about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. I wish there had been a little bit more, you know, talk and context about it. Or even just something of like, help me find my own writer. Maybe not hand me a book, but like take me to the bookstore and just talk to me about stuff once yeah. I got to a certain age. I don't know. Yeah. Well, yeah, we never I think got that. When I was a librarian, we have this um, collection building policy of uh, you always add, you don't take away. Mm-hmm. So when um, the library 
gets so many more complaints than anyone will ever know I'm sure. <laughs> about their collections. Um, and so usually it's, you know, a book that um, is political or uh, a lot of romance gets flagged by complaints because people say this is smut. I don't want my taxpayer dollars going to smut. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I don't want my taxpayer dollars going towards this thing that says climate change isn't true. You know, like, and so, like, there's, it comes from all over the spectrum. I don't want to make it sound like it's just one sort of, like, puritanical um, people. Although mm-hmm. there are a lot of puritanical people. But yeah. it comes from all Especially over. And so the collection, um, the policy of the people whose job it is to maintain the collection is, well, we're not going to remove this. But what we will do is we'll make sure that next year's budget goes to more um, what we call sweet romance. That's romance with closed door sex scenes or, you know, no hint of sexuality at all. Or we'll make sure that we buy, you know, our budget – adds more, um, you know, climate change truth novels, or not novels, nonfiction books. And and so the idea is we always add, we don't take away. Gotcha. And that has always been my philosophy as a parent, um, talking about sexuality, um, because I don't want to take away problematic things from them. You know, like, I don't want to say, like, you can't watch um, Riverdale because it's gender politics or dubious, you know, yeah. <laughs> or something like that. Um, but what I do say is, let's watch Riverdale together. And what do you think about this mm-hmm. thing? Let's talk um, about that yeah. yeah. Um, I think I see it a lot with, um, rather than sexuality, I see it a lot with, like, body politics because I think fat shaming is one of the, um, like, easy jokes that you still see a lot of like sitcoms make Mm -hmm. um and stuff like that um and so rather than say like no you can't watch any episode of parks and rec because they keep making fun of obesity like then that's when it's like let's watch it together and then when it comes up let's add context to it and let's add conversation because if you don't add context they're going to default to you know these sort of structural narratives so if your mom didn't add context about romance novels we sort of default to the shame that there's something shameful about them. Mm-hmm. There's sh- something shameful since, since about books for about women it, written then. by women. Yeah, mm-hmm. so then we just don't talk about it at all. And what we're left with is sort of the default. And um, so I would like to try to get rid of that as much as possible. So we did not put a big emphasis on having one big talk about sex. We instead try to have lots of little talks. It needs to be ongoing. Yeah, yes, and just have absolutely. it sort of be an ongoing dialogue yeah. so that they feel comfortable bringing things to me and yes it makes it easier that my day job is thinking about sex all the time (laughs) right um so it's always really present in my mind um but it's also not easy right because it was not a legacy my parents gave me my parents were also very um quiet when it came to sex mm-hmm. um and I had Did you like grow up going to church or anything like that I my parents were not religious mm-hmm. but I chose to be religious same um, here yeah and so I converted to Catholicism when I was in seventh grade mm-hmm. um and then in high school I fell in with a really evangelical like purity ring kind of set oh well that kind of explains your book series <laughs> yes yes yeah. so. you did a whole thing about like you were like my book's about sex with the priest. Yes, and yes. then of course I think about Fleabag, <laughs> which is freaking amazing. Yeah. If you haven't seen that, I um, yeah, am deeply interested. Yeah, I'm deeply interested. And I, in... I went through the purity ring culture. Too. Oh yeah. Um, have you read Nadia Bowles Weber's Shameless? Mm-mm. I highly recommend it. Okay. Um, so she is a Lutheran minister um, who is looking for a new way for Christianity to talk about sex, and so okay. Shameless is her philosophy is um, always. <gasps> 
fuck it, I'll go first. Wait, is she the one that did the purity ring yes, statue? Yes. Okay, I do melted, know who yeah, she is. People yes. sent in purity rings, and she melted them down mm-hmm. to make a metal mm-hmm. vagina. I love it. <laughs> Which and then she gave a, it to Mother Gloria. Yeah, yeah. So she gave it to Gloria Steinem um, as sort of a way, as a dialogue about how purity culture has been so destructive. Yeah. And how can we take these um, symbols, which have hurt so many girls and women, um, and turn it into something that's sort of a blatant statement and ownership of mm-hmm. sexuality. Yeah. Um, and it's and so her book, Shameless, I highly recommend it for everyone, even if you're not particularly religious. It's not a super religious book um, mm-hmm. in terms of being sort of like about theology. Um, but what it is about is it's about erasing shame and talking about grace. Mm-hmm. And also, um, if you live in America, there's just no way to escape the legacy of Christian body politics. Right. So right. Um, we're th- still deeply, deeply in the throes of Christian <laughs> yes. body politics yes. in America. <laughs> Absolutely. Let's just look at how many states are passing ridiculous exactly. laws removing bodily autonomy from yeah, women. Absolutely. And so it's a it's an amazing book. And um I'm really I'm really interested in how spirituality informs our sexuality mm-hmm. and how it can be um harnessed for a good for good, you know, there's so much there's so much pain in the intersection of um, religion and sex, and I don't shy away from that pain. But I also try to look at like, but what is the what is the gift of having spiritual sex? If you can have sex with your entire human self, you know, not just your body but also your soul, like mm-hmm. what does that mean about sex and the mm-hmm. kind of sex we have? Yeah. Oh, I like that. Yeah. I talk a lot with clients with friends stuff like that about how um, our religious upbringings influenced and inform where we currently are and I think that one of the things that's really appealing to me and I'm going to continue to read into the the genre is that there are times where people can explore maybe a a different ending to their own story where when they didn't get to change their narrative or or they haven't gotten to yet that they can explore through books and through movies and through other forms of art a different ending for their tale yes and see that like it's possible to see that people can grow but I do come from a place where I feel like pain is one of the only things that gets us to experience true change yeah I would agree because unless we're actually feeling something from that that creates a, a physical or emotional pain there is no growth i i 100% agree and i think that that's why all good romance novels have um, what we call the dark night of the soul um, Ooh, yes yeah. <laughs> and they have this moment where you know everything seems bleak and and hopeless and usually it's because someone's messed up um, in a big way mm-hmm. um, and i really think that um, a good romance novel brings you that kind of emotional catharsis. Mm-hmm. Um, even for people who didn't, who uh, are living out a great narrative, you know, like they're living their best lives. <laughs> it's still really powerful for us to continually experience transformation by proxy. Yeah. Um, and I think that um, we're all constantly undergoing series of transformation. I actually think this is why people really gravitated towards young adult books from, you know, Twilight to the Hunger Games era. Um, even adults read young adult books. Uh-huh. And I think it's because the journey of someone growing into agency happens in a big way when you're an adolescent, but actually we're all doing it in tiny ways all the time. Constantly. Yeah, yeah constantly. Yeah. And so I think that constantly um, having that cathartic 
journey with someone else, um, you know, through a character gives us, it gives us power. It gives us fuel for that transformation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think that the best books are ones that have that catharsis. There's a, there's a lot of books coming out right now that are very, um, gentle in that way, which I think is really powerful. I think like a lot of women, um, marginalized folks, people of color, queer people, people with disabilities, they deserve stories that are are gentle too, you know, that are like sort of on that hallmark level of like, this is going to feel good. Like mm-hmm. I deserve that to have maybe something. Maybe there's still a conflict, but it's not something that's incredibly, incredibly painful. Exactly. It's just more of like having an experience that transforms you and makes you better or yeah. gives you more agency. And that or reading it is a gentle experience. Yeah, and I mean, that gotcha. you're, it's not I like that you, compared yeah. to Hallmark. Yeah. yeah, right. Like we all, we all kind of like, we crave that sometimes. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I do think that the romance books we remember, the ones that really stick with us are the ones that pull us through pain by proxy. Um, and what's great about fiction in general and romance in particular is that it's the safest possible pain because it's not really happening for one thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's only happening you know, in the synapses in our brain yeah. um, and that we're guaranteed that it's going to be okay. So yeah. we can walk through that pain knowing that there's um, optimism at the end and hope and joy. Um, but what they've proven, and I think I said this at GenreCon, what they've proven neurologically is that when you read a book, your brain does not actually know the difference between real life and book life. Mm-hmm. Um, so while your frontal lobe can kind of tuck away this, like, this is safe, this is not really happening, your mammal brain thinks that you're really interacting with this. This mammal brain cannot tell the difference between I'm feeling empathy for someone who's not real and I'm feeling empathy for someone who's right next to me Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and so what they've found is that reading fiction actually grows your empathy so people who read more fiction their brains are like more practiced and more developed in their empathy centers um and so reading romance makes you a better person (laughs) totally makes sense because all of my friends that are super heavy readers are very caring giving empathetic worldly people mm-hmm. even if they've not traveled the globe they are my friends that are a little more progressive sure yeah uh, we, we agree on similar things <laughs> like anybody else in 2020 but <laughs> yeah yeah I would say like that makes absolute sense anecdotally from what I see from my my friends that are really heavy heavy into literature yeah yeah and so I really I think that um it can be such a gift in that way because it not only creates empathy for other people, but we're, it creates empathy for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so it gives us um, the emotional language to identify our own feelings. Mm-hmm. Gives us permission. Um, it gives us permission to feel. And so it's, yeah, it's like this whole toolbox. It's like, it's empathy, it's catharsis, it's um, mirroring, you know, you have something to mirror. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really, it's really powerful in that sense. Yeah. How, so you are a USA Today best-selling author. Yes. How many books have you written? So I've written, oh, this is tough. I think I've written 15 mm-hmm. and maybe a few novellas on top of that. Um, and then six of them have been on the USA Today bestseller list. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. It's interesting to look at my growth from when I started writing books um, to now because it used to be um, uh, uh, such a such a painful process to write. You know, it was it was really um, in those early days. It was really vulnerable. Um, it was easy to get overly precious about it. Um, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. now I feel, I guess, 
I don't even know. I feel wizened. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I really am past so much of that growing pain to where I can really just revel in the joy of my job. And the joy of my job is I get to write whatever I want, you mm-hmm. know, and I get to talk about whatever I want for like a hundred thousand words at a time, which is amazing. Like it's, I, I think I have the best job in the world. Hell yes. And so, yeah. So, and I, you know, because I'm hybrid, so I'm partially self-published and I partially have publishers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have places where I can tell like this misadventures of a curvy girl is a story that's very, um, uh, it's very dirty. It's very, um, trope friendly. I'm, I've just gotten into it and I'm already like, <laughs> Hell yes. <laughs> and, the, and plus it's got a local feel to yeah, it. She's um, from Kansas City. Yes, a lot of my stories are um, have Kansas City nods to mm-hmm. them. Um, and so that one is a story that I think is really a really great entry point for people into erotic romance. And then the series I'm writing now is about like pagan rituals <laughs> and like ancient manor houses. I and, would like, love that death i've always so, been into like witches and dark shadows oh, and then you'll probably you might christopher pike and rl stein um, were my young adult novels christopher pike is what i grew up reading which same. actually i think explains a lot same <laughs> about me <laughs> um and so did yeah. we just become best friends i think Seriously. we're best friends which by rl stein oh yes oh, god i love that one well and what i loved about rl stein and christopher pike is that there was really a, a lack of judgment in those books like a lot of those teens are very amoral Mm -hmm. um like there's drug Mm -hmm. use there's sex and the only thing that uh christopher pike seems to think is a bad thing is murder (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) and even then it's sort of like well but are you a vampire then maybe it's okay or like Mm -hmm. did they deserve it okay Mm -hmm. that's Mm -hmm. fine um and really i feel like that's sort of been my sensibility in writing romance is like you know what what is actual morality? What is actual right and wrong mm-hmm. um, when we're talking about sex? Because we have so many ideas about, you know, what is wrong in sex. I teach, um, sometimes I give a workshop on taboo romance. And it's funny what people will consider taboo. That mm-hmm. I'm like, no, this is actually not taboo. So a lot of people will think that BDSM, for example, is taboo um, because it's so outside mainstream. You know, anything that's not vanilla must be taboo. And it's right. like, well, it's not actually violating what we consider to be uh, ethical lines, right? Not in the same way that, like, a priest, uh-huh. <laughs> a priest yeah. having sex would. Yeah. Or, or assault. Or, or, yeah, or stepbrother, stepsister, mm-hmm. or doctor, patient, or any mm-hmm. of those things mm-hmm. that are actually taboo. Um, and it's because we have this idea that, like, everything that's not um, penetrative intercourse in a dark room in a missionary is sort of, like, aberrant uh-huh. somehow. Yeah. Um, so anyway, like I just, I, yeah, I'm really interested in like, I would love to take that. Yeah. Yeah. Erasing, erasing all that, like sort of like feeling of morality, that paradigm from it Mm -hmm. and, um, and saying like, well, what is actual harm? Like what is actually ethically the bad things we can do as people in a relationship? Because I don't think it's, you know, consensually tie your partner up or, you know, or be a priest who falls in love. I think it's actually, you know. Uh, making someone feel like they're less worthy or, you know, making someone feel like they're going to go to hell or, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. kind like humiliating of humiliating somebody. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. emotional violence, spiritual violence mm-hmm. and bodily violence. Yeah. And so, yeah. Anyway, I can't remember how we got onto that topic, but yes, <laughs> morality. <laughs> yes. Morality and yes. romance. I love it. So I, what, what is your, what is your vision for yourself as an author? 
because you're you're saying you're starting to teach workshops and things like that you got 16 books under your belt like what's what's next for you Sierra I I don't know I think it's probably um I'm in a real sweet spot right now where I am writing what I'm passionate about so I'm gonna finish up this I have two more books in the Thorn Chapel series that's sort of the pagan sex and death in the woods (laughs) um it's very gothic uh I sort of, if anyone's ever read A Secret History by Donna Tartt, it's sort of like my erotic A Secret History. Um, and and then I'm going to write another book in the pre-series. So I've mm-hmm. written two books in that series so far. Um, one is about a priest and a woman, and one is about um, that priest brother and a young nun. And this one is about um, a monk. And uh, so I really want to continue exploring what, uh, what does a holy life look like and what does a holy life look like with sex mm. and like, you know, mm-hmm. in conversation with each other. I really don't believe in a separation between the sacred and the profane. Like I actually think that there, there is no division. That's an artificial division. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all these symbols that we've given ourselves to interpret what is sacred, what is profane, Um, they've become more important than the people they were supposed to serve. And so it's really important to me to sort of like question, just interrogate those symbols and interrogate these structures um, that really separate our humanity. So like cleave our humanity as like being two separate things rather than one integrated whole. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm in a really, like like I said, I'm in a sweet spot because I get to write exactly what I want. And sometimes people ask me to come talk about it. Yeah. Like for an hour. So <laughs> I'm like, this is great. Not only do I get to talk about it for like 100,000 words, but then people invite me places and then I get to talk about it, you know, at people's faces. <laughs> Isn't it amazing that when you are at a place in your life where you feel like you are doing exactly what you were meant to do. Yes. And the joy that you get to experience of living your best life. It's and powerful. It's like yeah. the best drug. Although You're in the driver's seat. I'm in the driver's seat and I... I um, have so much like repletion uh, from my work, which I think is always a good sign. So I think when you're doing work that goes against the grain, you feel depleted. Um, but when you're doing work that is really, um, you know, kind of braided through your bone marrow, through your DNA as something you should be doing, you feel repleted. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is, is that I assume everyone wants to feel like me all the time. So I'm always like, but what do you really want to do? You know, and some people like my husband, he's happy to go to his job and then come home and sit on the couch. You know, like his job is the thing that makes it so that he can spend time with his family. Mm-hmm. So he's like, no, I don't, I don't need you know, I don't need to be awash with joy every morning when I wake up. I'm like, why not? Why not, right? Because, I mean, as a coach, that's often what I'm trying to help people. Even yeah. if it's not in their, their their day-to-day lives with their job, it's at least in some capacity, whether it's with their partner or themselves. And at least because I feel like if I can help someone live their authentic life sexually, that can mm-hmm. spill over into so many other areas. I, yeah, I 100% agree. And I think that um, you have better sex the more complete a person you are. Mm-hmm. Um, Agreed. And so I really think that it's um, it's essential that we all like focus on building ourselves and also having great sex with ourselves. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then I guess, how do I have a better orgasm with my partner? I'm like, learn to have a better orgasm, orgasm with your yourself. Own. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think that that's one of the things that is really important um, in romance right now, too, that I see so many amazing authors doing is creating these really um, complete and whole characters that still manage to be um, magnetized to each other. You know, they still are greater than the sum of their parts when they are together. 
but their parts are also amazing, you know, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to a sort of, I say this as someone who loves Twilight, but there is sort of a sense with books like Twilight that one character is waiting to be activated uh-huh. by the romance, right? And like this activation is really what um, completes their growth as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I love that trope. I love reading it um, because I really am drawn to the idea that partnerships or, you know, uh, groupings can make you into a better person and make your life more electric. Mm -hmm. But also I think that it's important that we acknowledge in the real life (laughs) that it's important to be complete and to have joy that's separate from someone else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that when two people are supposed to be, and I, I believe in soulmates in the capacity of there are many people who can match you on a soul yeah. level. Yeah. And that once you find someone who has that good match for you on a soul level, that like absolutely amazing things can happen. Right. And you deserve right. to have that connection, that partnership, right. but you've also got to have something that is you. Like yeah. you've got to have a sense of yourself, but you can still grow with somebody. Absolutely. So like I, I see it as both. Yeah. I see it as both. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. My gosh, this hour has absolutely flown by. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I didn't even really have to ask you like a ton of questions. Know, we just got to talk about I it. I will just ramble about anything. I am fine with <laughs> that. I am invitation. fine with that. Like, I, absolutely. I mean, you can come back anytime and we can talk about this stuff. Well, we, because yeah. one thing I, I would really love to talk to you about maybe on another episode is, you know, really what a lot of what you were saying, you're a pleasure activist. Yeah. Oh, I have never thought of myself like that. Yes. So I just started the book Pleasure Activism. Uh Uh-huh. And it is a series of uh, writings from other authors, things that this author wrote herself or in conjunction with people. But the introduction just said it so poignantly that about when we are helping ourselves and others kind of seek that um, justice and compassion and equality, things like that, especially in the bedroom – that that makes you a pleasure activist yeah you know oh, we're, we're coming from that, that place of you know happiness joy equality justice which you mentioned very specifically yeah oh I love yeah. that yes I'm gonna I'm gonna tack that on to my mental <laughs> my yeah. mental placard yeah for your bio it's like erotic yeah, theologian pleasure, pleasure activist, activist. <laughs> yes I've started saying that for myself because that's really how I'm I'm a certified sex coach, a relationship and dating expert, a pleasure activist, a sexuality educator, like all the yeah. things, you know, well, you're, and I love you've it got several components of that too. Because it explains exactly what it is, mm-hmm. you know, it is like, let's empower each other to seek out pleasure. Like, yeah. why is that not one of the things that we feel like we can reach out and grab? Mm-hmm. Well, and we are so willing now in our society to say that pleasure is okay in the sense of like... Seek pleasure from travel. Seek pleasure from yeah. food. Get it from from wine or other things like that. Just having experiences bringing us pleasure. Your sex life is one of those experiences that should bring you like the yeah. most pleasure, but yeah. we don't talk about it. Uh, absolutely, I hundred percent agree. Yeah. So that's what that. we are out there helping break break people of. So I would love to do. so it turns out she has this same card set I do I do I will say I've I haven't actually ever done a reading with this so this will be my first um erotic deck reading okay so we're just I just do a one card pull but go ahead and you know do you want me to wherever you like if you would like to shuffle feel free yes I'm a I'm a big fan of tarot because I really love thinking archetypically Mm -hmm. um and I also really love the idea of sort of like guided meditation mm-hmm. um and you know using that as a as a point of reflection plus do you want to cut okay 
There we go. Ooh, so please describe what you see on your card there. Um, okay. So it's the so, Ten of Earth. So I've got the, um, I'm not sure what your deck calls it, but it would be the Ten of Pentacles, I'm mm-hmm. assuming. Yep. Um, uh, which is sort of like a earthly and bodily manifestation card. So um, I actually have, it's a woman reading at a cafe. Mm-hmm. Um, she's very sexy also. And she's reading at a cafe and it looks like she's reading with like maybe a glass of champagne. Um, and her mouth is open in what looks like salacious shock. So I'm guessing she's reading a romance novel yeah. and she's having a great time and she's doing it out in the open. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay. So the, the pinnacles, as you know, and especially a 10. So pinnacles is about your, it's about stacking papers. It's yeah. about making money. And yeah. 10 is about abundance. Like 10 is full. So yeah, the earth, which is pinnacles, um, corresponds to let's see the sense of touch and physical and material sphere the earth governs the body and our knowledge of it and also the instincts and sensations which this knowledge brings about oh. also the relationship with the self and one's inner being holy shit we just talked about all that yeah. so the 10 being comfort inheritance and income uh, this is about Mercury in Virgo. So it's about the need for critical and detailed communication. Oh, I love that. Well, that's my job. That is. <laughs> that's totally what you do. You know, and I really feel, I love that she is just like shamelessly reading this romance novel in public Hell and loving it. Yeah. And she's, I think she's inheriting her, her pleasure activism. She's inheriting her right to enjoy pleasure without shame Mm -hmm. and I feel like I've inherited my right to work in sweatpants all day (laughs) hell yeah and talk about pleasure and talk about pleasure and bring lots and lots and lots of other people pleasure in their daily lives hopefully hopefully so (laughs) well hey I've um so the problem with reading a romance novel in my opinion is you kind of have to stop and masturbate after nearly every chapter If I'm doing my job right, then yes. (laughs) Uh, No, this, okay, so I do have this book, Misadventures of a Curvy Girl. Yes. And I'm loving it. Oh my gosh, (laughs) it's really hot. So I am, I've been on a weight loss journey. I've lost 65 pounds. Uh I still feel oftentimes like a curvy girl at heart. And I sometimes struggle with, what if I do gain weight again? I mean, like to me, so what? It could happen. I don't know what life's going to bring me. But like, is that going to affect my love life right is that going to affect how my partner perceives me or how they treat me or how much sex I have how much they want to have sex with me because I've had that in the past where a partner was like I'm just not as attracted to you now that you've put this weight on I was like wow thanks you've put basically as much weight on as I have but fuck you too right um but I wanted to pick this as my first book because as someone who has been the curvy girl and is now struggling too with letting some of that go but then also letting go of the energy of like you wouldn't be looking at me if I was still the curvy girl yeah yeah like well and one of the things that I really had in mind while I was writing curvy girl is that um you know our relationships with our bodies are not a complete journey and I think like one of the gifts and um uh weapons that Instagram has given us is sort of this idea that there is like an achievement point, you mm-hmm. know, that like if you, uh, um, so either if you lose weight on that end, or if you're like a body positivity activist, um, that there's a point where you're so comfortable with your body that you no longer have to navigate internal like narratives about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, so I wanted to write a character who, from an Instagram perspective, looks like she has achieved, you know, capital B, capital P body positivity, mm-hmm. you know, that she is totally comfortable being a fat young woman and that she's comfortable dressing like it. She's comfortable, you know, with all this. Um, but the idea that even though she has reached 
a level of comfort, a level of uh, loving her body as it is, that there's still doubt. You know, that it's always, I always talk about um, issues and growth, like a spiral staircase. Mm -hmm. So we're always making progress, but we tend to circle past the same issues over and over again. Even though we are climbing up the staircase, we're circling past the same point. Um, And so she, yeah, yeah. And so she always has this, she does have this body doubt that she is, she is wrestling with it. And so I constructed two men who are just absolutely obsessed with her body um, as it is, mm-hmm. as sort of a foil for that, you know, that she comes to this relationship with the assumption that they're going to not like her weight, they're not going to like her body. And actually, the opposite is true. They love her body. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the things that I wanted to disrupt is this idea that men who like uh, plus size women are somehow aberrant or deviant, that there's something deviant in finding fat bodies attractive. Mm-hmm. Or it's that it's a fetish. It's a fetish, thing. right? Like yeah. we, we, we it, they're fetishists. We call them chubby chasers. Like we mm-hmm. have all this negativity. And it's interesting that we don't, we're not negative about men who like tall women or short women. We're not negative about men who like brunettes or freckles. Um, and so I really wanted to sort of disrupt that idea that there was something you know, deviant or sinister mm-hmm. uh, or pathologize yes. the fact that they like what's like, wrong with him. Yeah. What's wrong with him? Mm-hmm. That, you know, he likes her plus size body. I, di- I didn't want that. And so I tried to try to create a story that explodes all of that and just makes it like, no, I just love this body and I want to have lots of sex with you. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. I can't wait to continue this book. I'm very much enjoying it. And then I can't wait to share it with other people. Like yeah. this is definitely a book that I like being that person who finishes a book and passes it on Absolutely. to somebody else to love and enjoy and yeah. all that. So. I think, you know, it's interesting. The publishing industry has spent, you know, totals of billions of dollars marketing um, books to people and figuring out what works. Is it a full page ad in People? Is it on Goodreads? You know, what is the way that we can get people to buy books? And the number one vector for selling books is word of mouth, which mm-hmm. is something that doesn't cost anything. Yeah. The only thing it costs is writing a great book, um, one good enough that someone has to give it to their friend, yes. you know? Um, and so word of mouth is really the most powerful way to share to share stories with each other. I love that. Yeah. I love that. So Sierra, how can people find you? So I have a website, thesierrasimone.com. You can also find me on Instagram under the Sierra Simone or um, at Facebook, uh, the Sierra Simone. Instagram is probably the place where I'm the most active. Mm-hmm. I'm not. Uh, I'm not on social media as much as a lot of other authors because I have so many books to read. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, yeah, hundred thousand words. Yeah, hundred thousand <laughs> words about you know sex and death in the woods. Um, <laughs> but Instagram is probably the place I'm on most often. But also the best way to reach me for contacting. Um, is the Sierra Simone at gmail.com is just old fashioned email. I don't answer my Facebook PMs. Um, I'm pretty bad about answering my Instagram DMs because I just discovered there's like a second message folder. Uh, yeah. The, like the message request. Requests. Yeah. Yes. Had no idea that existed. So cl- like people have been trying to message me f- with like real questions and I just haven't even known. <laughs> so email me at the Sierra Simone at gmail.com. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Well, I would absolutely love to have you back on yes, again. Yes, anytime. Wonderful. You know, I I need no provocation to come and talk for an hour about sex. Yay! Same here. Same here. So if you ever start your own show too, let me Invite know. You on. Yeah. Oh, yes. So. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure.
Thanks for listening to Keep Them Coming with Open the Doors Coaching. Please rate, subscribe, and share this podcast and check the show notes for stuff we discussed in the episode. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, but visit my website if you want more information about me and my coaching services. You can join my not safe for work email list called the Dirty Bird if you want more content about sex and relationships. You can support said content, like my work with this podcast and other forms of media, by visiting listener support with Anchor FM or visit patreon.com to become one of my patrons. Again, check the show notes. I have links for you there. My theme song is original music by M. Kusa. Until next time.